Welcome to Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz, connecting the human side to Jewish history. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. Hi, it's Sunday evening. Um, spend all day long working on my Mozi Shabbos speech for the Israel series about the Ethiopian Jews. Very, very complex sugya. But um, I promised a number of people that would put something out or try my best on Sunday, so I'm trying to keep my word. Last week, I got a sponsorship uh, for this talk from a group of people, about nine, ten people. Um, and it's very nice. It's an honor. Uh, I know just about everybody involved here. This podcast is being sponsored in honor of a recent wedding of uh, Tzvi Erzi and Hannah Crook, which took place in Baltimore the other day. He's an old student of mine, and um, she's also Baltimorean, so it's always good when we get two in-town situations. Uh, and uh, I'll tell you the truth, I'm afraid to go to weddings now. I went today for a drive-by, even a, uh, what do you call it, a vort, and people are not wearing masks, and this and that and the other, and everybody's coughing at each other. So I become hyper in this sort of thing. Once you get over 95, you know, I'm already 99, so once you get over 95, you got to be careful. Uh, but nevertheless, I do hope to see Tzvi and his new college soon, especially once this uh, corona junk is over. Uh, but I do wish them all a very hearty mazel tov. And so, listen to this. Today's podcast is being sponsored by a consortium. It's Gabe Aronson. It's Meyer Barron. It's Israel Keston. It's Benji Kleidman and Matis Kleidman. And Yosef Cooperman and Zalman Cooperman. Look at that. And Mr. John Logue, him I don't know, and Abisha Nesaver. So, in other words, it's a whole group of guys. He's got nine, ten friends. I don't have nine, ten friends. You have nine, ten friends? They're really good friends. And very classy. They wanted to uh, honor the occasion by dedicating a podcast in honor of this happy occasion of the Hasana. I hope all the singles will get married soon. Now, um, since it's all a bunch of Baltimorean sponsors, so I figured this week we'll do a switch a little bit, do somebody local. I saw that this week or right around now is the yard site Rabbi Rice who was a tragic figure in the 19th century, uh, often misunderstood, Rabbi Avram Rice, who was the first rabbi in the United States of America that was in Baltimore, Maryland. Uh, I don't know if you've ever heard of him, maybe you have, maybe you haven't. An interesting figure from the 19th century. So here's a Yeki uh, from South Germany who lived from 1800 to 1862. He died in the middle of the Civil War. Uh, and it fits in uh, elegically, elegically, with um, two people I spoke about in the recent past. One was Haile uh, Wexler, who's from South Bavaria, as was our hero today, Rabbi Avram Rice, and also the son of Nodi Behuda, who had the misfortune of living in times when things were moving to the left. So here we go. Our hero today was um, had a tough life, and 
you know, in life you get breaks, good breaks or bad breaks. It would seem to me you got a bunch of bad breaks. Here's someone that was born in a small little village in near Würzburg, like we talked about many times in the past in Bavaria in southern Germany. In eighteen hundred. That means he's growing up eighteen ten, twenty Napoleon period and afterwards. This is when things started moving to the left in Germany. Uh, but many people were still part of the old firm world, including our hero. Came from a firm family. And in his youth, in his better years, in the 1810s, 1820s, and all that, uh, there were yeshivas, which were impressive, in South Germany. Uh, the reform movement and the modernizing movement hadn't quite hit there with the full force. And uh, this is all described in great detail, as I've said many times in that three-volume book by Rabbi Hamburger, you know, Mr. Yeki, called the Yeshiva Agadola Baharoma Firth, uh, which is all about the Firth Yeshiva, which is Nuremberg Yeshiva, which lasted for hundreds of years. And there were, there was the Firth Yeshiva, there was the Würzburg Yeshiva, and little branches of those. In the, in the first third of the 1800s, uh, the old school was still uh, thriving. And by that I mean you had institutions of Chinuch, and uh, people did learn there, and the Jews were very old-fashioned, let's put it that way. What you understand is the Yekka didn't exactly exist. It was in the process of formation, but mostly in other parts of Germany, when the Jews were more modernizing. But on the other hand, you're not in Eastern Europe, and so the governmental situation was the Jews had to westernize it to some degree. So it's like a funny combination. In South Germany, you had these people, they're very firm, but they couldn't exactly dress the way they had beforehand. Furthermore, we're dealing with a place called Bavaria, which was a large kingdom in Germany. I've said a hundred times that the country that you and I call Germany didn't exist as such until the 1870s and actually even later, to be honest. And instead, you had a bunch of different states. And there used to be dozens and dozens of them, literally. But after Napoleon's time, when he was defeated, by the time they had sorted out the new map of Europe, as I mentioned just the other day, but the Congress of Vienna in 1815, so uh, Bavaria lucked out and got a lot of karka. And so there was a large area in South Germany called the Kingdom of Bavaria, which was very Catholic anti-Semitic. This is the way it was. And here the real Mamzerib, and as opposed to some other states in Germany, such as Prussia and Hanover and whatever, the areas where Samson Rachel Hirsch lived, by contrast, in the Kingdom of Bavaria, they were terrified that the Jews shouldn't get too much. It shouldn't be part of a year. So someday had no intention of allowing it to happen. And so um, you had 100,000 Gezeras on the Jews. They can't live here. They can't go in this business. And most importantly, can't get married. It's called the Familianten Gazettes, which means that only a limited number of families are allowed. And uh, obviously they're sending you a message. Uh, if there's five kids in the family, for example, probably the oldest or the oldest male can get married legally. The others can't get married. Heck with you, you know. Either drop dead or convert to Christianity or move somewhere else, Bakasha. And during the, our hero lived through this Tukufa, and he's part of that entire generation that was, uh, even though he's super from, that was uh, impacted by this, the Xeris of this Tukufa. 
And he did what many Bavarian Jews did. I mean, tens of thousands. Tens of thousands. And it's move, get the heck out of Germany and move to a place called the United States of America. Uh, so, here's somebody who, in his tens, twenties, his teens, his twenties, and his thirties, was still living in Germany. He was very good in yeshiva, especially in the first yeshiva, and then in Abraham Bing and Würzburg. He, he went to what we would today call, you know, like, Cameron and Panovich, that that kind of thing in Germany. Really, and he was one of the good guys in the school. However, he always had bad health. When he was a kid, he had an accident, so he limped badly. And I think he had a hunchback of some kind or another. Something like that. It's a little deformed, a little bit deformed. So, the reason I say it is, a guy like that doesn't have any luck with girls. Nobody wants to marry you. Uh, unless it's a perfectly arranged shidduch, but usually that requires money. And so he didn't have mazel in the, in the classic old system. Now, therefore, imagine a guy who's in his t 18, 19, 20, 21, 22, 23. This one's getting married. This one's getting married. And, was, and you're not getting married. But you're learning a storm. Learning up a storm. And, I mean, you know, he became really good at learning. And now you're 30 and still nothing's happening. And, uh, like I said before, even though once about a time, a century before that, it wouldn't have mattered what you look like. They would have made a shit up based strictly on where you're holding and learning. My 19th century wasn't really like that. And so, you know, he had, this is not his fault. He had uh, not the greatest luck. But on the other hand, he's, uh, he, he didn't lose in his steiging, as we would say today. Now, in his 30s, early 30s, finally married a poor girl, uh, and uh, by this time you get to the 1830s, so the reform movement is already growing in South Germany, and there are very bitter fights um, between the Orthodox and the non-Orthodox. And the non-Orthodox won. They were able to persuade the Bavarian government to go against them, at least for a while. And things got very bitter. And uh, what the reform were able to do was close down the yeshivas. Using various pretexts. You know, they're anti-social, they're this, they're that, and the other. It's a whole long, very ugly story, which is described in great detail in those three fat volumes of Rabbi Hamburger. <laughs> And was a real crime. It's one of the reasons that the Frum came to super hate to reform beyond, beyond, beyond. Because not only was it a vort that, you know, they're, they're changing and making their own synagogue and doing their own thing, but they stared the others. You understand? This is why somebody like Sansa Ravel Hirsch and Elders has such a sharp character in their fights and polemics against the reform because. Uh, you know, they had done bad thing to us. Hirsch writes in one of his letter, I mean, his speeches, that his memoranda actually, then the reform took over in Hamburg, they closed down the mikvahs and things like that. You know, this is what I mean when I say play hardball, okay? So it wasn't simply that, you know, they disagreed, but uh, they went on the offensive. And I don't blame the reform at all. The yeshivas were the head, that's part of our story today. The yeshivas were the fountainhead of the uh, zealotry of the Orthodox, true? And uh, the yeshivas were the secret to the continuity of the Orthodox, and still are. And so, if you can 
stop the yeshivas, then you'll really put a big whammy and maybe kill the Orthodox. And that's a very good swar, I'm sorry to say. You understand? Because without yeshivas, it, it don't work. And uh, this is the environment in which our hero grew up. So this is why I say, it's a little bit like Landau, that life turned bad. Had he, he, for a guy like him, he would have preferred to be born not in 1800, but in 1700. He had more mentality like that. Life would have been different. But he was born in the 19th century, and things went the wrong direction. And it was very bad. And as a result, uh, he and a lot, and, and the best guys in the yeshiva, some of them, in the Würzburg yeshiva, they, uh, they said, let's make Aliyah, let's move to Israel. Uh, I think they probably associated in their mind the triumph of reform as they perceived it was a go-go-go-mug-go of some kind. There was a very famous movement in Judaism that the Mashiach's coming in the year 1840. It's a very well-known thing. After it was all over and everybody got egg on their face, they tried to, you know, ignore it and pretend it didn't happen, but it was a big messianic ferment that's going to happen <laughs> in 1840, and here we are in 1830, 1835, whatever, and so, as I said before, uh, our hero was one of the guys that said, you know, let's move to Eretz Yisrael, and some of his buddies did, and became very, very important people in the early, early, early Yishuv, uh, his Chavrus, and one of them was Yosef, Yosef Schwartz, who wrote the Tavuos Arts, if you know what that is, uh, very famous safer after he moved to Israel, the Yaki, you know, but the Halachic geography and flora and fauna and things like that of Israel. Very important safer. Uh, another friend of his was Eliezer Bergman, who eventually, shall we say, starts Pentateuch and that kind of thing. Important figures in the early release of, and to be perfectly honest, that's what he should have done. But it didn't work out that way. To going to the Middle East was pretty dangerous. In the period I'm talking about, 1830s, there were major wars raging in the Middle East between the Turks and the Egyptians. Uh, you don't have to know all this, but the Pasha of Egypt kind of rebelled against the Sultan of Turkey, and his son, Ibrahim Pasha, invaded and conquered Palestine and Syria, and then the great powers had to intervene. It's a whole big story. So my point is there was a turbulent time, and it soon became clear that he ain't going to Israel. So what do you do? What do you do? Here we come across the big problem of yeshivas in general, which is they don't train you for anything. Now, they train you to, to learn a lot, but then what do you do with it? So they don't necessarily train you like a college will and say, okay, now we're going to put you in a market share position, the way a graduate program is supposed to try to find uh, a position for somebody who goes through this grad school program. They'll give it their best shot to get you an academic position or something like that. Yeshivas don't do that. Uh, as far as the rabbin is concerned, yeshivas don't train you to be successful rabbis. You know, they don't have no public speaking thing, uh, pastoral duties, all that kind of business, which you can smirk at, but can make a difference in certain circumstances. The circumstances I'm referring to is when you don't have B'nai Torah as your Balabatib. Now, uh, so, here we have a guy who, as I say, was very good in learning, had all the Yekisha virtues of being 100% honest, beyond belief. And, you know, yes is yes, and no is no. If I like if I like your skirt, I'll tell you I like it. If I don't like it, I say I don't like it. You know, bust is often long, is often sung. Uh, but what do you do? 
and the guy's like in his 30s. He's going to be 40. What do you do? Money he doesn't have. Uh, nobody's giving him money. <laughs> he was connected with this Rosenbaum family I spoke about a couple weeks ago. They had that little community outside of Würzburg, you know, a tail where they had like a small yeshiva. So he taught there. But, you know, it, it didn't look like a future. And so his friends told him, uh, go to America. Now, you know, you tell somebody go to America, just like that, on the one hand, you're saying, well, there's no jobs for you here, buddy. On the other hand, it's not exactly right. You know, like, what's going to happen when you go to America? There's no position waiting for you. They say, listen, you'll go to America. You're obviously going to be outshine anybody else in learning because the place is a midbar shmama, which is true. And you'll become something like, somehow or other, you'll become the chief rabbi of America. After all, it's the late 1830s, around 1840. Who is moving to America in droves by the thousands? A German Jews, actually Bavarian Jews. Right? Our, our neighbors, our relatives, which is true. I told you before that since the rules in Bavaria were so uh, anti-Jewish and the government at that time, 20s, 30s, and, and, and early 40s, had no intention of switching. So many young Jews, I don't blame them, they uh, said, I'm out of here. And they just left the country, went to the European ports, and went to America. So, and this continued 1830s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s. You know what I'm saying? All those decades, there's a continuous stream of Yekish immigration in the United States. When I say the Yekish, I should be more exact. It's Jews from Germany, from Bohemia, which is semi-German, from Holland, from France, Western European Jews. And a quarter of a million of them came to America. That's a lot. So, as far as the history of the Jews in the United States, the way it works is as follows. By the time of George Washington, there were only 2,500 Jews in the whole America. Uh, but, of course, the whole America was small. New York City was 13,000 people altogether. That's why when George Washington had his inauguration in what, March or April of 1789, on Wall Street, uh, all the ministers of every single church in New York, which weren't that many, participated in the inaugura inauguration. Each one got a bracha, you know what I mean? Including the rabbi, or the chazan, to be more exact, or the Portuguese show, what they call today the Spanish-Portuguese show. Because there were like 13 or 14 churches, meaning the synagogue being one of them, and everybody got a piece. So... America was a smaller place. Now, there's 2,500 Jews in the whole America, let's say in 1790, when Washington was president. If you know your American history, there was not much immigration to this country between 1790 and, let's say, 1815, 1820. Because the wars were raging continuously in Europe. It's called the French Revolutionary Wars and the Napoleonic Wars. And people didn't move. Consequently, the population of the United States didn't grow that much. And if you're talking about Jews, it probably went from 2,500 to 3,500. You see what I'm saying? Very small numbers. People don't realize. Very, very small numbers. 
in the whole 13 colonies. Now, then, starting around 1820, the immigration started to pick up among the Goyim. That's how it worked. It's called the Era of Good Feelings, James Monroe's administration, if you remember that from high school. And indeed, the country needed a heavy dose of European immigration to fill up the country and you know, uh, build up the economy. And that's what happened. America started a boom. And this country in general went through a tremendous expansion in the 19th century, fueled by this immigration, uh, except that since it's the old capitalist system with zero government controls over anything, you could cheat, lie, and steal in the stock market, and that kind of business. So we had a boom and bust situation, you understand? As the economy would go gavaldic, then people would get greedy and start investing in things that didn't exist, and then there'd be a stock market crash, a couple years of misery, and then would start all again the boom. Uh, called the boom and bust cycle. So you had a, like every 20 years, you had a terrible depression in 1817, a terrible depression in 1837, you had a terrible depression in 1857, you had a terrible depression in 1873, and you had a terrible depression in 1897. So it was like pretty much every 20 years. And in between was the recovery. So the people who moved to America during those years, you know, unless you had a bummer that you moved Mamish in the year of the depression, Usually things are either up or on the rebound. And the Jews eventually became part of that. You know, I wouldn't say in the 1820s, but starting from around 1830 on, the Jews seriously became part of that wave. And so several million German Goyim came and 250,000 Jews, which is a lot. Okay? A quarter of a million Jews is a lot. And so the Jewish situation in America was transformed because by 1830... Some Jews had moved in, but I think they, they estimate that there were like 8,000 Jews in the whole United States, which is nothing. 8,000 Jews in the whole USA. I'm talking about when Andrew Jackson was president. But then it went from 8,000 to 250,000. So the Gantz America was transformed by this endless wave, ship after ship after ship, disgorging Germans and Jewish Germans, German Jews. And... Uh, they either got off at the ports in America, and then most of them immediately... And l- let me say this. And America at that time was a capitalist paradise or hell, depending on your economic outlook, uh, which in simple terms means there was no unemployment insurance, there was no Social Security, there's no Medicare, no none of that. And, uh, you know, so if you don't make money, you drop dead and starve, like Saddam and Amora. On the other hand, it was like, come out, no taxes. Uh, so you kept what you eat, you know, basically you kept what you made. So it's uh, it's made for a certain type of person. If you're not the go-getter, don't go to America, because you'll you'll die of starvation. But if you are a go-getter, uh, then the world is your oyster. In other words, you'll make of it what you make of it. And the German Jews, but Derek Klau, the generation of our hero, came to America in the 1830s, 40s, 50s, 60s, and 70s. And Bader Klau... They worked hard, and they became millionaires, <laughs> to put it in simplistic terms. They became successful businessmen. And uh, I'm saying this because this is going to be very negated to the life of our hero. And so what it means is, you get off the boat, and let's say you're coming from somewhere in Bavaria. Let's say, for example, in an ideal situation, you're a bachelor, and you're like 18 years old, so you're stark. And you get off the boat, you save five bucks, literally five bucks from the old country. 
and you're off the boat. Nobody's going to help you do anything. So you have to make sure nobody steals the five bucks. And you're in New York, and it's 1835, or Baltimore, or uh, you know, Boston Harbor, one of those places. It's 1835. What do you do? And it's a bolagon, and there's a lot of crime, and so on and so forth. So basically, each man for himself. So you make it your business, if you're smart, you know, to be very cautious. You find out where you can get a few things to peddle. So let's say the guy has five bucks. So he'll take two dollars of this uh, of the five and he'll buy let's say for example some pencils and combs and he's buying them that they cost a penny a piece and he'll go and sell them for two pennies a piece i'm I'm very serious and that means already you know you made a little bit of money and then you come back and do it again and you do it again you get my point and after a certain time you already assembled twenty dollars and after a certain time you assembled a hundred hundred fifty dollars and then when you get to that level, you try to do something that doesn't require the pedaling so much. So maybe you can actually do something called a store. Oh, a store is gavaldic. You don't have to walk like a peddler. You stay in one place and they come to you. It's a grenade, <laughs> you see? And if you know what you're doing, uh, yeah, and you're able to weather the boom and the bust, so you build the store up, then it'll be a bigger store. Eventually you have two stores. And eventually it'll be something called Macy's and Gimbel's and all these other guys. They're all German Jews. And in every city in America, the more enterprising German Jews built the department stores and the other kind of things like this, and they prospered. Now, in order to do that, you have to walk, walk, walk as a peddler until you put the money together. But people did it. This was the life. And so your dream is, I get to the point where I actually make all together, I'll be worth $1,000, I can get married. $1,000 in America person is already a ganze parnosa. And, you know, I can put a little bit aside for my daily expenses, for me and my wife now, my family, and the rest, you invest in some kind of the business to grow it and grow it and that kind of thing. This is the world I'm talking about. Now, the reason I'm telling you that is the following. If you're Jewish, you get off the boat, it's money, money, money. You can't help it. The whole country is run on ruthless Sodom and Amur principles. Now, the Gavaldic thing of America was total freedom. The Jews coming from Germany where you can't do this, you can't live here, you can't get married, can't do nothing. It's all gone. America was a Ghanaian. It's separation of church and state. There are no anti-Semitic laws. It's not on the books. Then it's Nahapacho. Then you went from a, a hell to a heaven. But, on the other hand, from the religious perspective, there was nothing Jewish around, except what the immigrants themselves built. These immigrants, who were coming and coming and coming all the time, all come from, shall I say, from families, all of them, because they all came from the town, the situation where our, our, our hero did. Jews didn't come from cities. You were not allowed to live in the city in Bavaria. Jews were not allowed to live in the cities. They had to live in the villages near the cities as part of the Gezeris. Everybody comes from a small village. You know what a small village is. Shabbos has a certain character. Yontav has a certain character. Kashrus has a certain character. I didn't say by super from or this and the other, but... The rhythms of life you're familiar with, but you're not familiar because you learned in a yeshiva or you have a formal education. It's the old traditional mimetic Judaism in which you know what to do on Shabbos because not that you read a book, you just know you come home, you say Shalom Aleichem, and then you do Eshes Kyle or something like that, and then you make a kiddish, and oh, well, for Yaki, what you wash, and then you make a kiddish, and then, you know, you know, in other words, from observing, from observing. Uh, now, it's okay with me. 
the problem is when these people will be coming in this great wave of immigration I'm describing, they ran from the 1830s to at the end of the 1870s, during the entire time of which America was a pure capitalism, like I said before. So, so on the one hand, the pull to make money or else you starve is unbelievably powerful for perfectly understandable reasons. And second of all, you know, the, the, the Jewish framework is kind of shredded. And the reason I say it's shredded is the following. In the old country, Jews peddled there also, plenty. The Jewish peddler in the German countryside was a very common figure. Many Jews were allowed to do petty peddling. This was the closest you could get to bring the farmers and the villagers, you know, like a department store. You get it? You're living in a farm. You're, you're far away from a city. You never see a store with, with goods in it. This Jew shows up every once in a while, selling of this, selling that. And this is where you pick up stuff. Uh, but, hear me well. Let's say I was a Jewish peddler in the 1820s. It would be the same thing as if I was in the 1720s or the 1620s or the 1520s. I know I go and peddle this and this and this, and they come to this village, and in this village is a shul and a kosher place you can eat, and, uh, you know, a mikvah and this and that and the other. You understand? Uh, and they're scattered all over South Germany because the Jews live in tiny, small communities scattered all over South Germany. So wherever I go, if it's Friday, I can always stop nearby and place by Shabbos. You get what I'm saying? I'll come to a little village. It'll be 10 families, 15 families. And if necessary, I'll stay there for Shabbos. I'll make my arrangements. It's everywhere. Now let's contrast that with Maryland, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Indiana, the South. You see what I'm saying? They're coming to a new country. There are no Jewish communities anywhere. What does a guy do? What does a guy do? You walk, 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 sell, 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 sell. You understand what I'm saying? The guy would get off the boat, and once they got their act together, they would hit the road, you know, and they would literally pedal for hundreds of miles. There are stories, uh, I could give you a whole speech on this. There are stories of people who started in New York and pedaled all the way to Cincinnati and then settled down in Cincinnati, having made some cash along the way and became big wholesale merchants in Cincinnati, seasoned good family and others like that. And uh, they prospered. Now, you have to have strong legs. So basically, you have to be 18, 20 years old, 25 years old. You know what I mean? You have to be st physically stark. Uh, you have to have good shoes. Uh, you have to be able to pastor melech tocha by Masur tishta, to live on very little. Not because you're so from, but in shame amassing money. You know what I'm saying? The necessities of the economic situation push the economy the, the cheap way of living on you, that you're amassing the money for a better day. It's a very interesting story. And it happened for decades and decades for all these Jews. So you're not, if you're peddling in the countryside in Pennsylvania or Ohio or one of these places or, uh, you know, uh, the Carolinas, whatever, you ain't coming across no place for Shabbos. And you ain't coming across kosher food, baby. Where are you going to find it? And so then life becomes very difficult. Uh... A person has to be very disciplined to say, you know, I'm going to be like nuts and berries, like Yogi Bear. I'm not going to eat any meat. I'm not going to eat chicken. Just live on this and that and the other. It's, you know, it's not pushing. And I'm not even talking about the people that care about Bishalakam. You know, just how, how do you... It's a big Nisayan. That's my point. It's a big Nisayan. Now, it's easy to diss somebody today like that, but it's not fair. It was a big Nisayan, and there wasn't a framework 
a misgeret to uh, what they needed to have was a Chabad house everywhere <laughs> that didn't exist. And so, what do you expect happened? Little by little, you know, I'm sure it happened time after time. A guy would start and say, you know, I intend to keep kosher. And for a week or so, he kept kosher and finally said, heck with it, you know. Can't do the same way. I'm just got a chicken sandwich and that's it. Go to some little countryside. The lady offered me a chicken sandwich. I'm going to take a chicken sandwich. By the time you're over, you're eating chazer. This is way it goes. So it's the, this was the casualty system. Once upon a time. Second of all, a person's got to be very self-disciplined to say, you know, America is a Christian country, so Sunday's a day off. So I'm going to take off Sunday and Saturday. Like I said before, and you're the only one in western Pennsylvania who's doing that. You're the only one in the Indiana Valley around who's doing it. Everybody else is working. It's tough. See, now nobody forced you to do it. The Etzimatsis of the economy is pushing you to do it. This is the, the real world which uh, existed in what we call the United States of America at that time. So it was a Ghanaian in the political sense and the freedom it offered, and it literally placed zero economic barriers in front of the enterprising Jews, which is why the German Jews in general, many, many, many of them did very well. You understand? It was a system that re rewarded hard work and punished laziness. You understand? Punished it severely. Uh, so, th this breeds a Philistine mentality, which in English we mean, you know, very money-oriented. You can understand it. It's sad. You can understand it. Now, there were Jews who did more than just the peddling. They would, like I say, when the, when the opportunity uh, uh, offered and their money came in, they would set up a store. And so, you imagine a whole Jewish community, everybody's got a store, one kind of a store or another. This was the Jewish economic, socio-economic profile. Now, um, in the case of our hero, Rabbi Rice, so, he had smith and all that sort of thing, of course. He was a big Talmud Chacham, as I said before. I mean, he was a major Talmud Chacham. I don't know how to classify him, Lagabe, the other great rabbis in the 1830s and 40s, but he was no slouch. Huh? I mean, I'm not saying he's a Chassam Sober, but he was no slouch. Remember, the guy sat and learned Yom Valila, you know, through his teens, his 20s, and his 30s. What does that tell you? Now, they tell him, go to America. So he goes to America with his wife and child. The child dies. He has another kid. Uh, he comes to New York. Uh, it's already known that a big Talmud Chacham is here. So this is not a guy like the other German Jews. The other German Jews are coming for the purpose of setting up a business and making money. In other words, making a parnosa. Nothing wrong with that. Here it was known that this person's getting off the boat, not with the intention of opening a store, and not with the intention of going peddling. He's 40 years old, right? And second of all, he had, to, he had a, a bad limp, you know, he had a bad foot. He couldn't peddle if he wanted to, you know what I mean? Unless he physically wasn't capable of that. They had a hard time walking. Uh, and so what, what does a, a person like that do in the hustle-bustle, super-capitalist, small-business America of 1840, when Martin Van Buren is still the president. Like, what do you do? Uh, it was Dover Yudua, it was mentioned in Jewish papers, a big Talmud Chacham is coming over here. On the one hand, the German Jews are like, oh, that's interesting, a big Talmud Chacham. But what is a big Talmud Chacham going to do in America? 
Now, I'll tell you what should have happened. I'll tell you what should have happened. It should have been that a bunch of Jews got together in New York, which already had a sizable German-Jewish community, because they'd been moving there for 10 years. So New York had 10,000, 12,000 Jews at that time, something like that, maybe more. And they should have said, listen, since we have an autumn gutter like this, we have to take care of the Jewish side of things, not only the economic side of things. And so let's set up a yeshiva or a school for someone like him to teach our youth. And he will produce American rabbis or something like that. And we'll do our bit for the religion as well as for the Gashmias. And there were wealthy Jews in New York. And uh, there's even a guy, Samson Simpson, who was a millionaire. He was, he gave, he said, I'll give a piece of land for yeshiva. What do you call Hebrew Theological Institute? Him and yeshiva. He was a from guy. He was actually the secretary of Aaron Burr, the guy who shot Alexander Hamilton. This whole long story. They had people, people of that nature. And uh, especially if he would have been a Hirsch, which he was not, he would have said, listen, uh, there's a Jewish community in, in, in New York. Let's concentrate on making a from day school. They'll have good English and good Hebrew. That's really what was needed in hindsight. But that's not what happened. Nobody paid any attention to him. Everybody's busy trying to make their own Dalaramas, their own their own Kesevizov. And so there was a rich guy named Kershid, who was uh, actually a little, a little bit of a Talmud Chacham, he welcomed it, but, you know, nothing developed from it. So it's not like the shoals all ran to kiss his feet or anything like that. It was more like, what are you doing here? <laughs> what are you doing here? And wasn't exactly sure what to do. Uh, after a try here and a try there, he met somebody in New York, who said, come with me, I'm the president of a congregation in Baltimore, Maryland. And, you know, we're looking for a rabbi, and there is no rabbi in the whole United States. What you have to understand is, until 1840, when he showed up, there had never been a rov with smicha in America. During the entire period of the colonial times, which for the Jews would mean the first Jews came here in the 1650s to New York, New Amsterdam at that time, the Jewish community in New York which had the Spanish-Portuguese shawl, had a kahila but no rov. Well, that's a Portuguese shtick. That's a separate discussion. But Nero a chazan. Uh, the other communities in America, same thing, they had a chazan. Chazan's not a rabbi. And uh, they expected the chazan to be the equivalent of a rabbi, but to use modern terminology, all you need for that is kitzvah shukhanach. You know? All you need is kitzvah shukhanach. So they don't have too many kashas. And... If the Chazan got it right, the Chazan got it wrong, big deal. The main job of the Chazan, I know what I'm going to say is going to sound funny to us, was to literally uh, lead the davening word for word, as the Sephardim do, correct? I've spoken about that before. Many of my listeners, most I'm sure, are not Sephardic, I assume. I mean, real Sephardim. And we're used to the Ashkenazi way in which the Shliach Sibu just says a few words, and everybody else says the other stuff. But in a real Sephardi synagogue, including the Spanish-Portuguese tradition, which all the shoals in America at that time, until the German Jews showed up, were Spanish-Portuguese tradition. So they actually have a guy whose job is to say out loud the entire dominating from Matovo, including the Kriya Torah and the whole nine yards. And that way the Oilam doesn't actually, actually know how to read very well, if at all. And so if that's the main job of a Chazan, and I imagine sometimes they would throw in, can you also be a Shochet? But Ask me a question, what kind of 
Shechita was in America in those days. If there's no Rav, if I say there's no Rav, it means there's nobody as Yeri Yera. Get what I'm saying? Nobody ever took a Bechina in Yeri Yera. Now you tell me what kind of Shechita is going on in America. You get what I'm saying? It's a ugly situation, that's what it was. And they were too dumb to know that they're doing anything wrong. And this is what they mean when they said America was a mid Mama from the halachic perspective. And I'm talking about even the Frum Jews. The Frum Jews had a Shochet who cut the neck of the animal with a knife. Forget about Pegimas and all that. This is how life was. Now, uh, can you imagine somebody with a Shiloh? It doesn't exist. Doesn't exist. Yeah, chicken child. They didn't know unless it was discolored in an obvious way. Now, um, a Rav, whose job is not to participate in the worship service, right? A rabbi's not supposed to participate in worship service. He just to be there as a scholar, uh, a person that can be your personal encyclopedia, perhaps your personal Google. Has uh, to assume you want to Google to answer shows about Yiddishkeit. Uh, a, a rabbi, you know, what do you need that for? Now, the German Jews who started come 1830 came from a different tradition than the Spanish-Portuguese Jews. The German Jews uh, do have a tradition of Rabbanim. In Germany, a Kehleterov. Right? A man of basin, if it was any size. And so, the very first German Jews that come here in the 1830s and 40s, when they're able to, simply by mimesis, by going by what they saw in the old country, if they could, they would get a rabbi. And if they could, they would even set up a basin. However, the problem is, rabbis didn't move to America. Our hero is like the only one. Uh, later came some, but he was the first one. You know what I'm saying? He was the first rabbi in America with Smicha. In the New World. And um, what job do you have for him? Well, his friend said, come with me to Baltimore, Maryland. We're having a show. We're going to build up the show. And it's a Yekish show. It's a Bavarian German show. We want a rabbi. Okay. Why they want a rabbi? It's not a good, I don't know exactly why. Because the men, uh, you know, they weren't that from, they were just from. But in Germany, you have a rabbi. So here, I'll say have a rabbi. Well, and he agreed. This was the only job that was open to him. And he came there in 1840 in August, and he spent the rest of his life, 22 years. Because he only died when he was 62 years old. He wasn't old. He spent the rest of his life in Baltimore, Maryland. Now, uh, Baltimore at that time was the third largest city in America. It was the second largest port. Uh, it was a uh, cooking, you know, and the city very lively, and so forth. A lot of immigrants coming in all the time. The B and O railroad was there, so the notice from Baltimore came the railroad to open up to the west. There's a lot of economic activity going on over there, but on the other hand, life was real hard. Uh, the weather is terrible always here. You know, everybody who knows the summer without air conditioning is a bummer. And those days. The hot summers was combined with the fact that people, as I mentioned in many of my podcasts, people don't know anything about health. And so any port city, every time the ship comes in, you bring the rats and the thing from the other side and the, you know, the other rodents, and they spread a disease. So Baltimore always had Magaphus. I think Rabbi Rice has had a, one or two kids that died like that from Magaphus. That's, that's how it went in those days. And the Jews, such as were there, had settled near the harbor, which is very common in Jewish history. But relatively speaking, Baltimore was gigantic because it eventually uh, had about 10,000 Jews, which is humongous 
for America at that time. Okay? So it was one of the leading Jewish communities. But what does that mean, leading Jewish communities? Well, in quantity. Okay? What about quality? Well, that's a different story. In Baltimore, you had, for the vast majority, were these Bavarian Jews. Uh, they're here to make money. Life is hard. You work your head off. That's what everybody does. And you hope for the best. Uh, but, just like in the old country, you had a, a shoal, a kill of some kind or another. So here also, they made a shoal, Nidchisrael, they call it, the Yekesh Shoal. And uh, this became the place, it's a house, you know, it's a house. It's became where we held services. But only on weekends. You didn't have chakras, you know, you didn't have weekday services. Why not? The answer is obvious. Everybody's uh, uh, peddling and uh, business uh, during the week. You get it? The cycle is, for the more traditional people, you go pedal around here, 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 and hopefully you come back on Friday, and you rest on Shabbos, and Sunday, and then, you know, Sunday night or Monday, you hit the road again. Because nobody's giving you any money. Whatever you sell, whatever money you make, you make. Whatever money you don't make, you starve. This is what they call Yiddishkeit, once upon a time. So our hero became, in this, you know, I guess it's an old-fashioned way, the president knew President Shul knew a guy from the old country, and so he brought him in and used his power to make him president. Now, that means that Rabbi Rice is going to be, as far as the career is concerned, a synagogue rabbi, and to a certain degree, a communal rabbi. It's okay with me, but he wasn't cut out for this. He, in retrospect, was a very great man. In retrospect, he should have been in some kind of Rosh Hashiva or something. That's where his talents were. But that's not the way the cookie crumbled. They took him to be rabbi of a synagogue. Now, what was the problem? The problem is, to be a rabbi of a shul, you have to have certain talents, depending on who the Balabatim are. One of the main talents is to be a diplomat, which is very tricky from a firm perspective. Very tricky. Because the successful rabbis are the ones who know not everybody's going to be 100% this and that and the other. You have to be able to use, I'll, I'll use very simple language to make it easy for you to understand. Half your soul's not going to be from. Those are the guys you get the money from in order to build the, 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 the yeshiva or the school to which the from half will send their kids. You get what I'm saying? That kind of thing. So you have to be like, sneaky's not the right word, but you have to think in very strategic terms uh, and realize that not everybody's going to be the way you want it to be, uh, but maximize the potentiality of the situation. That's what history later showed worked in America. You get it? If you look throughout America at uh, schools, yeshivas, and those kind of institutions, which are the only thing that hold the Orthodox up, usually it came from people in the community who were not from, when I say not from, not mitzvah observant, but nevertheless had a soft spot in their heart for from projects. And therefore, you have the very common phenomenon, not the rare phenomenon, of yesteryear, where a person is Mechal Shabbos and Achilles Trafes all the rest of it, and he'll give a million dollars to Lakewood. He'll give him half a million dollars to Nehru Israel. Yes, and, and such a thing is not unknown at all. Ah, it's a tart to the Sasri. No, it's not. Life is, that's for math and science types. You know, liberal arts guys know that the human being is full of wonderful contradictions. Nothing wrong with it. And it's possible for a Panabisharov to go to a guy who has no shyness to anything like I say, is completely living a total non-halachic lifestyle and cut a check for a million bucks for a point of it. This is how life is. That's what you needed. Okay?
Alternatively, if not, then you need a Sam Serenfield Hurst type. Somebody with a very impressive personality, an orator, with a first-class secular education, a powerful and imposing personality. You, you see what I'm saying? You know, you consider overall, and uh, then maybe you can organize your Valabatim around grand projects and raise money and carry them out. But Rabbi Rice was not uh, a Hirsch. He had no training that way. I'm sure he could learn better than Hirsch, no question in my mind, right? After all, Sans Rebel Hirsch went to Yeshiva like a year. And even though he learned a lot on his own, I'm not taking away from it, but our hero was in a regular Yeshiva for like 30 years, <laughs> okay? And Kolel, but on the other hand, he had no training in public speaking, you know, how to give a fancy sermon. He could give a Gvaldika Drasha of the old school, but, you know, you have to have the right Balabatim to appreciate a Drasha. Imagine a show of regular Balabatim, and a guy comes from Yeshiva and will say over a Ramban, <laughs> right? You know, he'll say over a, a Kliyakar, uh, you know, something like and, and even worse, he'll say over a Pilbul. It don't mean anything to these people. You get it? I the, 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 the content is very good. I agree, the content is good. It's not good for the occasion. Right? But in case you need something that'll work for the Balabatim. I, to do that, you have to dumb it down and you have to talk in a, in a similar language, very non yeshivish. So what? That's where the action is. You understand what I'm saying? If you want to get to them, if you want to touch them, you have to speak in that way. And so you have to be rhetorical flourishes. And by the way, the 19th century was the era of the hour and a half sermon and the extreme rhetorical flourishes. Oh, that's not the other. And our hero wasn't like that at all. One like that at all. So it became very clear right away that, you know, great speaker he isn't for his Balabatim. You can say, and you'd be right, they're not holding by his Madrega. That's absolutely true. You're obviously right, right? You know, for, as far as Torah is concerned, he could, you know, knock them out. But uh, it doesn't mean anything to them. These are people who came from villages, didn't have much of a chinuch anyway. Like I told you before, whatever Judaism they had, they learned back in the old home, Friday night, watching the mother of a bench left and the father say, Shalom Aleichem, you know, they don't, they don't know anything. And you have, they, 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 they you know, to, to say over, like I said before, you know, a Sephorno, you know, or a Chaim, this and you know, it, it doesn't work for those types. You know, it doesn't work for those types. Second of all, and even worse, was the fact that he was just a plain Yeki in the sense like this. I call it as I see it. You understand? My job as a rabbi is to say what's right and wrong. The number one job of a rabbi is to, say, to teach the people the difference between right and wrong. I'm not disagreeing with that. But that means right away, you're going to get up the first shop and say like this. I see people are not keeping Shabbos and they're opening the stores and Shabbos and has to stop right away. Well, okay, how are you going to get them to do it? And if they don't do it, so what happens to your sermons? Get it? If you get up every week and say, I'm going to reiterate what I said before. It's totally also because Shabbos it's a chiyav skila. This and that. If you do it week after week, it loses the point. So he's not wrong at all. He's hundred percent right. But uh, I'm not going to work. Uh, in that show, you know, I remember in the beginning he said like this: nobody who's not a shomer shabbos can get an aliyah. Really? Uh, within a short time, it became clear. Hardly anybody. Uh, there was a few, but very few shomer shabbos in the halachic sense of the term. So nobody's going to get an aliyah. They're going to get an aliyah. <laughs> And by the way, the Elias is the source of income for the Shul. He's not getting an Elias. It never occurred to him 
to start doing what Rav Entlinger and the others say in Germany. They say, well, nowadays the Shema Shabbos, Mechal Shabbos, not exactly Apicurus like it used to be. You know, I'm talking about the famous uh, Binyan Sian, who was writing exactly at this time. I mean, he tried to come to terms with the new Messias. Uh, who was it? Rabbi Kivager? I remember years ago, I once wrote something for the Ashurant about Rashiva, Rabbi Rudiman, and he saw somebody in the 30s, was a rabbi from Scranton, maybe, I forget his name, and he said, it was a Hushua Rav from Scranton, the name escapes me, and also there was nobody from his shoulder, something like that, and there was something about the people, you know, in the Shulchan Aruch, there were about people with Mechal Shavu's Prahesio. The guy said something like, to Rabbi Rudiman, I don't have a problem in my shul of Mechal Shavu's Prahesio, because, like, nobody keeps Shabbos, therefore, Prahesio means in front of 10 Shomer Shabbos. So nobody, nobody's being Mechal Shabbos in front of 10 Shomer Shabbos. And Rabbi Rudiman thought it was funny, but then he saw Rabbi Kivager says it, and Rabbi Kivager lived at this time. So the rabbis in Europe already were forced by circumstances, not by what they wanted <coughs> to accommodate to this new reality. <coughs> and by the way, it is a new reality, like uh, like the Edlinger says. It used to be once upon a time, if a guy was Michal Shabbos, he was making a statement, I spin on Judaism. But by the 19th century, people, you know, somebody's keeping the store open in Shabbos, is not spinning on Judaism, he's just saying I have to make a living. He's wrong, Right? It, like I say, it's kind of a skiller or a car, it's whatever, he's wrong, but he's not going anti. And I think, you remember this? It's a famous minion scene. I haven't seen it in a while, but he says something like, what do you do? The guy keeps the, goes to shul half day, keeps the the store open half day. You can't say he's rejecting Judaism, he's in shul half the day. So, what do we do with this thing? Our hero wasn't built like this. He's from South Germany. What's right is right, what's wrong is wrong. Anybody's Mechal Shabbos, you're going to call him out. Well, that ain't called how to win friends and influence people. Do you know what I said? It's not how you win friends and influence people. Now, in his favor, it was clear that he was 100% Yashurus, glad kosher, glad yosher. He never said anything he didn't mean. Everybody knew whatever he said. It was evident that whatever he did, Hashem Shemayim, evident. No one could say he's a phony, he's a hypocrite, he's doing this because of his personal interest. Even the reform later on who, uh, who fought him even the reform said, listen, we have no time in his personal character. We disagree with Ashita, but as far as him personally, there's no question he's 100% honest, 100% Lashem Shemayim, Lishitoso. So the best you can say is he provided a tremendous example of somebody who was, as they say, of the highest character, which is important in happening, and, uh, you know, the greatest rectitude. But he wasn't mishpian hardly anybody, except a small group, right? Except a small group. Now, this shul was started in 1840, little by little built up. In 1845, they built a synagogue, which is still there today. It's called the Lloyd Street Shul. It's a historical landmark. Uh, it's a museum. We can't, can't get it. Although, I was able to do it last year, two years ago. We ran a singles event, Ari Elbam and I, and Rabbi Schaffer, on a shop. So we had... Well, 100 and, 100 and something, 150 singles? I don't remember, something like that. That was actually a very nice event. Uh, but And you can still see the old show, you know, what it looked like over there. But um, uh, I remember seeing this. The, the, uh, they announced it in the Jewish newspaper, and they said, Rabbi 
uh, Rice gave a speech, and Rabbi this gave a speech, and this guy from out of town gave a speech, and that was a, that was the one that really went over. In other words, his own Balabatim were not impressed by his own speech, speaking ability. So he didn't come across as somebody that was able to win people over with, with oratory the way Hirsch was. You understand? But Rav Hirsch was a kind of unique person. Not everybody was built like that. A result of his particular uh, upbringing and training. Our hero wasn't like that. Now, I'm sure he gave a blot shear, and I'm sure he gave a Mishnah shear, and I'm sure all that kind of stuff. And, and you can be sure that his, you know, blot shear was, in other words, he, he knew the Gemara and all this kind of stuff. But who, who, let me on the Yama, who are you talking to? Who, who, who are you spending your time on? You know, most of the people are out peddling, and most people can't appreciate what is your offering. And so I think early on, he saw this a bad shidduch. And that's the tragedy, in my opinion. All I ever tell you is my opinion, as I keep repeating, giving my uptouch. It's a tragedy of this man's life, because he spent years and years and years in a situation that wasn't great. And he must have known, because it was obvious to everybody, that in another situation, he would be great. You understand what I'm saying? And uh, I think he never stopped hoping, as people, uh, you know, discussed, that maybe they will become like a Shiva or something along those lines uh, in America, and then he'll be obviously the candidate. You know, let me stop just for a minute for a second. Here we go. Okay. Um, what was I saying? Here we run into a major problem in American his time, and that is the Orthodox were a bunch of boobs and were very disorganized, and there was no, like I say, no reverse here. Uh, person. Excuse me, a person like our hero, you needed helpers to say, think in American terms, how can we create, like I say, for example, uh, OIU? That would have been fine in those days. Uh, or something like that, to provide Jewish education and secular education for the youth in this country so that they'll become something. And at the same time, have a Parnosa. No, again, they. they American Orthodox Jewry existed was extremely disorganized. There was a few here, a few here, a few there. The main guy who got anything done, to the degree got anything done, was Isaac Leeser, Yitzhak Leeser in Philadelphia. He was a bachelor guy. He's a, a weirdo. But he was indefatigable in trying to work for Judaism as he understood it. And he's the first one who started a Jewish newspaper, The Occident. In other words, not The Orient, but The Occident. And it's online, a lot of issues of it, if you want to see what American life was at that time. And that was, if I can use the expression, like the Jewish uh, press or the Jewish week, like a mixture of the two, back in the 1800s. Mutatis mutandis, of course, you know, obviously under very different circumstances. Written in that very stilted, old-fashioned, 19th century Victorian English. Uh... Isaac Leeser tried to create in America a sense of Orthodox American Judaism that would be American and from and the basic level. He was a good guy, but he himself had what we would call today a high school, like a, a like a Shtikol Mechina high school education, something like that. And he was the first one to say, I'm not a Talmud Chacham, I don't claim to be. Uh, you see what I'm saying? And he was the leader of Yiddishkeit. Somebody doesn't know anything. And I can tell you right now, when Rabbi Rice came to America, Isaac Leeser, who already had the newspaper at that time, 
and everybody in America was reading the newspaper because the only one had a national circulation. Uh, he immediately says, Tamil Chachambol America, and I welcome Rav Rice, who's a real thing, and everybody should send their shilas to him, which they did, and we should be him. He said all the right things, and he meant it. But just because he writes the newspaper, n- nothing real came of it. And I'll tell you again, from time to time, if you read in the Occident, people say, we have to get together a national based in, uh, and Rabbi Rice should head it. We have to get together a national yeshiva. Yeah, you have to, have to, have to, but nobody came up with the money and the thing to actually make it happen. This is the tragedy. While the Orthodox were talking and not doing, the Reform were talking and doing. Because about a couple years after Rabbi Rice came to America, started coming to Reform rabbis. And they made a Corbin over here because they saw exactly all the situation I described to you before and said, this is a place where the old-fashioned Yiddish guy is not going to work. Uh, well, it's not working. So we'll have a new-fashioned Yiddish guy which will remove and everything, and that'll work out great. And uh, their success was phenomenal. Starting in 1843, I think, is when Isaac Mayer Wise came. He was the most successful rabbi in America in the 19th century. Now, really, Al-Payasher, it should have been the other way around. Rabbi Rice should have been the most successful rabbi in America in the 19th century. But that's not the way it worked. Rabbi Rice, we'll see, was utter failure, and, and the Wise was utter success. Now, uh, that's not right. The leader of reform, who was a jerk, by the way, Isaac Mayer Weiss did not learn, he didn't know anything, he was a good faker, he was a good writer, you know, real bull artist. Really. At that time, they called him a bull artist. In 19th century, you didn't say bull artist, you say humbug. Everybody called him a humbug, right? That's what that means. Uh, in spite of that, the Balabatim loved him, he built a giant temple, he organized a, a, a reform yeshiva, if I can call that a national organization. They say he was a tremendous organizer. The Orthodox needed this. Had they had anybody to do it, America would look different. If there would have been a movement, as there could have been, I know what I'm talking about, I know this stuff, in New York and places like that, to start, again, like a YU, uh, you had the guy to head it. Rabbi Rice would have been eminently qualified. And by the way, he learned English. And he wasn't uh, a chenyak in the sense he knows nothing of what's going on in American culture. He knew he had to learn. You know, he knew German. He learned English. He read the newspaper. He knows what's happening in national politics. But his main focus, obviously, his own per- persona is in Torah Vavoda. That's who he was. You understand? So a, a person like this should have been made the head of a, of a school, either to train rabbis or just have a high school and train uh, Balabatim, either way. And he would have been to- totally tsukapast. And America would look different. Let's say they started doing this in the 1850s, when you already have plenty of Jews in this country, even 1840s, let's say 1850s. So by 1860s, 1870s, you already have a core and a growing core of people spreading all over America who know something about learning, know something about Yiddishkeit. It's what happened in the 20th century, 100 years later. But unfortunately, it wasn't the 1850s and 60s, it was the 1950s and 60s. In his time, the, they just had, all you ever find is, is a newspaper article, you see? And I'll say it again. If you read The Occident, which was the number one newspaper, everybody knows this. It's actually written pretty boringly, but sometimes they have interesting information. And um, you'll see, the guy's always saying, Passover questions, write to Reverend Dr. Rice in Baltimore. You want to know what kind of estrogen do you There was once a thing about the estrogen. It was a Mishagas. Can you use the estrogen from the West Indies? 
And I don't know, you know, there's an arch on there that says something like, you can't, you, if I has it go, you can't get esrogim that, that are in the south of the equator or south of something uh, because they're growing the wrong way. Those, since the earth is a globe, to the point, if it's sticking up, then it's going downwards, and that's Shlokadarki Duon. And he wrote, he discussed that, Rabbi Rice and others. He had these discussions back and forth. People would challenge him. But it's, you know, I'm, <laughs> I know exactly what it is. The people who challenged him as a lucky reasoning didn't know nothing. You know, they were like dumbbells. But this is what he had to put up with. But, you know, he gave clear answers. And when the reform movement started getting traction, he wrote these very yakish sort of things. You're not allowed to do this because we believe this and this is Maimonides said in this place. And everything, you can't argue with a single line that he said. But it wasn't like Hirsch, you know, it, 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 the rafters didn't ring, the phrases didn't sing. It's not like it, it's electric off the page. He just wasn't that kind of a writer. And remember, he's writing in English too. And so the result is that uh, it was not a good shidduch. Uh, to be a successful rabbi has to be a good shidduch. Even Hirsch, you know, when he was a rabbi in uh, this show, he had a terrible failure and it was bad news, and he had headaches. And then he came to Frankfurt, and then it was a good shidduch, and then it worked. You understand? So even somebody who, it, it's like life. You know, you might got to marry the right girl. Correct? Uh, you can be great, she can be great. If it's not the right girl, then it's not going to work out. It's got to be the right girl. You have to live in the right time, the right place, the right everything. Get him out And uh, a person... To be the rabbi of the synagogue in Baltimore, Maryland, of these Balabatibs who don't have any appreciation uh, for who their rabbi is, and they can't because they have no training. Only a Ben Torah of some kind can have an appreciation for somebody who's a Gadol Torah. You, you follow what I'm saying? person can be very big if the Balabatim don't understand it. So it's like, you know, everybody knew he's very from, everybody knew he's very honest, Everybody knew he's a big Talmachachim, but they didn't know what that means. <laughs> Get it? It's all Rabbi Wright's a big Talmachachim. What does that mean? I don't know. If you ask them to name the parts of the Shulchan Aruch, they don't know. They probably didn't know the names of Tanakh. Certainly didn't know the names in Mishnais. The ignorance level is very heavy, okay? The ignorance level is very heavy. This guy I mentioned before, Isaac Leeser, Philadelphia, he accomplished wonders by issuing a, 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 a sitter with English, a, a Tanakh with English. Uh, this was considered amazing, uh, you know, a step forward. So America was in shvacha business, and Rabbi Rice was underused. Now, as a result, as time went on, he started in 1840. 1840s a time when the economy is taken off. Uh, this is the period of the Mexican War and all that. The American economy shot through the roof. Every year, thousands of more people coming, thousands of more Jews coming in all the time. Uh, this is what it was. That's why the Reform Rabbi started coming, because he saw there's a, there's a future over here. Um, as the 1840s goes on, he sees, listen, there's no point talking about Shabbos, people aren't listening. There's no point talking about Kashas, people are not listening. Now, I can't keep talking about Shabbos, they don't listen. So what does somebody do if you're a salaried person, nobody's firing you, you get up every week, you speak, and it's, it's healthy, uh, a Titan Bankers, you know, it, it, it doesn't work. And so, in 1848, 49, I guess, he just quit. He had no pernosa, and he quit. Um, which was, uh, you know, really something. Like, how you gonna make a living? He opened a, a, a grocery store, or something like that, a couple blocks away. You don't know downtown Baltimore, why would you? I know where it is. A couple blocks away, in a different neighborhood. 
not far away. But let me tell you something. It's a guy who's 49 years old. He's almost 50. His health is never good. He's got that limp. He got the back problem. It's Baltimore where the it's not the right place for a person of delicate health. The weather in this uh, city, unless you got the air conditioning, it's not a good place. You understand? Uh, the, we have four um, harsh uh, seasons. You get it? Man, those days, it's 19th century, you know? And so it, it was tough. And for somebody like him to be a successful story owner, he's not a merchant. He has no background in this. He, he did this because, you know, he was so honest. He said this, I say Shabbat Kachobat Tzedak Labrias. I'd rather open a store and live hand to mouth than, you know, to be dependent on Balabatim, who hired me as a rabbi and don't listen to what I'm saying. Did you get it? So he had the courage of his convictions. And naturally, a guy like this is not going to make a success of a store. By that, I mean he's not going to turn into a Macy's. Yes, he had a dry goods place, something like that. So, you know, he made a little bit of a living. He's not you know, running around. A person like I'm describing isn't going around like you need to go to where the buyers hang out and say, be a chevron, how you doing, George? And what's up there? And this and this, and what do you think of the Orioles? And, you know, that's not who he is. Right? Second of all, if you're a person like he is, it's, you know, oh, no, you know, you don't cheat at all. You, you rib is, it's hard, it's hard to run a business if you keep all the halachas, you see? And um, so he ended up doing what you can imagine. Either. How do you su supplement? You have to give lessons uh, to kids in Hebrew, bar mitzvah lessons. They're all it's disgusting. You understand? And he wrote to his rabbi how miserable he is and all. I can just imagine. And for the next 10 years, this is how he lived. During this time, things went from bad to worse. The shul, the next rabbi they got, I forget it was, but the rabbi after that already started saying, let's have an organ, let's have a this, let's have mixed seating, you know, all that business. And the shul was full of fights. Now, um, then they got a from rabbi for a while and went back and forth. They couldn't make up their mind what's going on. Uh, how did he, where did he David? He made a minion in his house. Okay, made a minion in his house. Now, you can be sure, the minion in his house are like the 10 people that's all, maybe 12 people who really care about Shabbos and Kashos, all the rest of it. So from a Jewish community in Baltimore, about 10,000 people, maybe 11,000 people, that 12 families, 13 families, whatever, that uh, are what we call today from, okay? Uh, and that's what it was. So it was a miserable existence. And all during this time, the American Jewish community is growing. And like I say, here you have a diamond, in Baltimore, that somebody should use, and the Tsuka passed away, and, uh, you know, uh, it's not going to happen. Now, what's interesting is, and here's part of his problem also, he came from Germany. In Germany, a Jewish community is an organized business with some sort of control and coercive power. Back in Germany and Bavaria, the Jewish Kehillahs at that time still had a certain amount of coercive power. Orthodox reform this is exactly why the reform movement grows up. They want to take over the Kehillah and use the, the coercive power in their way. That's why Hirsch, for example, fought against the reform in Frankfurt, because they were trying to use the coercive powers afforded by the law to the Kehillah, which they controlled against the Orthodox and so forth. So, my point is like this. A from Jew is a stickle dictator. You get it? A from Jew wants to tell others what to do. Whenever you have a from community, it immediately turns into a situation where 
people are trying to control what you can see, what you can do. Can you have a TV? Can you dress this way? Can you do this and can you do that? That's a control freak thing, which by European standards is the expected way. In the United States of America, they ran into a radical different reality. It's a constitution separation of church and state. It's not possible at all in America to control anything. You understand? It's not possible legally to control anything. The Balabatim over here were of no mind to go listen to what somebody tells them what to do. And so the notion, as he had hoped, that they would set up a basin in America and the basin would then be in charge of all the Gitin in America, which is a great idea, right? The basin in America, theoretically, would organize the Kashrafs in the whole America. That'd be a fantastic idea. Meaning, to take the European virtues of an organized Kehillah system and use them to promote a higher standard of Jewish practice throughout the country is something nobody was interested in. This was like a big blow, you know? It's not that they're against you. They don't care. It's, it's a, what's the right word? Um, you know, uh, apathy. Right? But that is what America was. And it was only growing because the more people that came, the more shuls opened. Once you have one shul after another, after another shul, every shul wants to be its own boss. And they're definitely not going to take directions from some basin or some chief rabbi or whatever. Now, what's ironic is the reform movement, as it grew, also did the exact same thing. They wanted to organize and control, and they succeeded, uh, Isaac Mayer Wise, in organizing national organizations and uniformizing everything. The only thing is they don't believe in, in, in keeping any mistress. But uh, they did develop this like central notion. It's I don't, I don't want to use the word based in Kehillah, but let's use that uh, for that matter by the reform business. And they were able. To, they they knew how to combine the volunteerism of America with the centralized organization necessary to get things done in a Judaic sense as well in the 19th century. The Orthodox were, you know, helpless. It's it's. It's beyond sad how dumb and stupid the Orthodox were in America in the 1800s, the period I'm talking about. And here's Rabbi Rice, and you know, even the other Orthodox consider him like, oh, heavy. Now, here comes the funny part. Uh, and his health wasn't good. You can imagine now the guy's 50s, he's getting to his 60s. He's not a person in great health in the first place, and I keep emphasizing the bad weather over here and the summer and all the rest of it. Uh, in 1850-1960, things changed. And I'll tell you what happened. It's called the Civil War. Or, no, it's not. It's called the build-up to the Civil War. Uh, America was founded on a compromise between the North and the South. I'm talking about the Constitution of the United States in 1787-1788. The North did not have slavery. The South had slavery. Now, actually, the North had slavery, but very, very little. The South had much more. So, and the North was already... Like, if you, if you were start to say in the North we should get rid of slaves, okay, I hear that. Very few people have slaves anyway in Massachusetts, Connecticut, places like that. And so the notion of the abolition of slavery was, uh, you know, an idea that made sense. Uh, and now that they were saying that they had fought uh, the revolution, they have freedom, and on the other hand, you tell me you have slaves, so it was like a, a targeted assassin. So to make a long story short, it was a great compromise reached. And the North basically said, we'll combine with the South into one United States of America, and we won't mess with your slavery system. Okay? They weren't crazy about it, but that's what happened. Uh, and the first six presidents were slave owners anyway, with one exception, so it didn't matter. 
semi-presidency of Washington. Adams wasn't a slave owner, but Washington, Jefferson, Madison, Monroe, uh, forget it, Adams, uh, Jackson, and then what do you call it? Uh, uh, Tippecanoe, what's his name? William Henry Harrison, John Tyler, James Polk, uh, Zachary Taylor, they're all slave owners. And then not. Now, as long as that was the case, the South said, okay, so you know, they won't interfere into slavery. But, you know, the minute the Constitution was ratified and the United States came into being in time of George Washington and they started talking about liberty and freedom, and they did, and they meant it. So you can't help but notice that slavery is a stira to liberty and freedom and all the things that you identify with America, with pure America. I know Thomas Jefferson, I get it that Thomas Jefferson was watching had slaves, but the rhetoric that they had, especially Jefferson, makes like slavery like indefensible, you understand? Now, this meant that once the Constitution was ratified, there began an abolition movement in this country. But it was an abolition movement in the North. So already in the 1790s, as early on, you start to see states pass laws which say no more slavery in Massachusetts, no more in Vermont, in New Hampshire, no more slavery eventually, I think the last holdout was New York or something like that. This was an abolition movement that swept the North. And if you know your American history, it was even going to hit the Middle States, but it didn't. Suffice it to say that by the time we get to 1820s and 30s, there's a big tension. Because abolition movement, having conquered the North, now they put their sights on abolishing slavery in the South, and the South did not want to abolish slavery at all. Not at all. And as we know, it built up to big tensions. And by the time you get to the decade before the Civil War, it was... The, the tension was so thick you could cut it with a knife. Now, listen closely. If you're in the North, so it's pretty clear that you're against slavery. If you're in the South, it's pretty clear that you're pro-slavery. In the Hanami, there were a few people in the North that were pro-slavery, but Ruba de Ruba was against it. In the Hanami, you could find a few people, Yechidim in the South, like the Krimke sisters and others in Charleston, who were against slavery, but that's the exception. 99% was in favor of it. The problem is if you're in the middle, like Baltimore. It's what they call a border state. You understand? Baltimore is a half north, half south. And so the result is that opinions were sharply divided. You get it? This is the, what happened in middle states. In Maryland, Virginia, Delaware, and to a certain degree, to a certain degree in Pennsylvania. And that's what it was. It's a highly divisive issue. And... Baltimore, anyway, was a... I don't want to give you too much local history, but Baltimore, anyway, was a very violent town. It was called Mob Town uh, because they had over here the anti-Catholic party, the, what they call the Know-Nothing Party, which used to run the elections and people were killed. You think Trump election is a violent thing? It's nothing compared. More people were killed in the elections in Baltimore in 1857 than were killed in the biggest battle of the Mexican War, the famous thing in the... Protestants and Catholics fired cannon at each other. Churches, uh, a good time was had by all. Now, um, and then it turned on the slavery issue. Now the problem is, actually, it's very good that I'm giving this talk now a few days before the Trump election. Trump and Biden. I have no idea who's going to win, neither do you. But we all know it's a highly div divisive issue. Okay? A highly divisive issue. Maybe not among the, my listeners, I don't know. But out there in America, among Jews. So you can understand, this is actually a good sushto. Come to a shul this Shabbos, and, uh, or this past Shabbos, 
And you can totally hear, by the way, the coronas put a crimp in this. You can totally hear people have big arguments over Trump, right? Pro, anti, and so on and so forth. You can totally hear that. A shul could be torn apart by this. Would you agree with this? I, I agree with it. I could definitely hear a situation where friendships are broken and shuls can fall apart and this and that and the other over to Trump. Well, that's what it was like in Baltimore among the Jews in the 1850-1960, just before the Civil War when the tension was very high. Everybody's tearing each other apart because it was clear that the two sides are forming in Halonu Ata Olitzarenu. Are you going to be for the slave or against the slave? Are you joining the South, joining the North? And Baltimore is very split. The previous, now, there was a famous reform rabbi here, Einhorn, and he was very anti-slavery abolition in this. And he spoke so harshly, he was a reform rabbi, that he had to leave town. They were going to kill him. He went to Philadelphia. Now, what about the Nidhi uh, Yisrael Shul, which by then had become the Baltimore Hebrew Congregation. That's the the Baltimore Hebrew Congregation. That was the main shul in town. Look here. Anytime any rabbi is going to come in, you know, if you hired a rabbi today or in this past year, he will have some opinion on the Trump, right? He'll have an opinion on the Trump. And maybe, and a from guy will go this way and a modern will go that way, whatever, have an opinion on the Trump. If you start giving sermons on that, you're going to alienate half the congregation. This is what it was like on the slavery issue. Are you for slavery against slavery? And people got fights and fist fights in the shoal and so on and so forth. And I might point out in Baltimore there were mobs, pro-slavery robs were killing people in anti-slavery, and vice versa. It was a crazy time. In this environment, when it looked like the shoal's going to fall apart, I think terror, you know, being shred to bits. So when it came now to get a new rabbi, they said like this, anybody we get is going to be a highly divisive figure. Uh, he'll have opinions on the slave ratio. It'll be for Abraham Lincoln, it'll be for Jefferson Davis. Either way, it's not good. But you want to know something? We should get Rabbi Rice back. Why? <laughs> you want to laugh at this? He doesn't care about Trump. He doesn't care about Biden. He doesn't care about the slavery. He doesn't get into slavery. He cares about the Torah, about Yiddishkeit, about mitzvahs. We'd rather him get up there and cuss us out for being Michal Shabbos than get up there and cuss us out of the slavery issue. Talk about the election of Abraham Lincoln or against Abraham Lincoln, that kind of thing. Let him talk about Jewish stuff. And they went to Rabbi Rice and they said, I guess we want you back and we'll make the show from. Of course, they, they didn't say they're going to become from, but we'll try to accommodate you as much as possible. And basically, we're apologizing for making your life miserable 10 years ago. We'll try to do better this time. And he accepted it. Isn't that interesting? He accepted it. He didn't give up the minion in his house. Because, as I told you, services were only on weekends on, on, on Shabbos Yantif. So during the week, he still kept in his house. But, uh, uh, you know, for Shabbos, he's going to be the rabbi of the shul. And in this strange circumstances, as America was uh, forming, you know, sides for the Civil War, which broke out, of course, 1861, he came in just before that uh, to introduce peace and harmony. <laughs> in the Jewish community by concentrating strictly on Jewish stuff and as he said, cussing them out for you know, as a rabbi is supposed to do you know, Shabbos, Kashos, Taras, Mishpacha everything you know, Chinuch the whole nine yards and they were willing to take it from him 
because by that time they say it's better than talking about politics. And anyway, everybody knows whatever he said. You know, by that time they could they could appreciate the uh, what's the right word, the purity of his motives, even if they didn't agree with to do what he said. You understand? Notice he's a man of principle. He demonstrated by quitting the shoal, by living a poor life. We can't take it away. He's a gavra. Like I said, I don't necessarily follow what he says, but he's a gavra. And Rabbi Rice obviously thought that in this new round, he'll have more success, and maybe he would have, especially because the country was put in a little bit of more of a religious uh, frame of mind by the civil war that broke out in 1861. First of all, Baltimore was a, a crazy place. I don't know if you know this. There were big riots at the beginning of Abraham Lincoln's administration. Abraham Lincoln became president in March 4th of, 9th of uh, 1861. The war didn't break out right away, but before long it did. And uh, uh, Washington, D.C. is actually the beginning of the South. And the trains from the North have to pass through Baltimore. And uh, Baltimore was, uh, a lot of people here were in favor of the South. And so it was a whole bunch of businesses that they rioted against Union soldiers walking through here. They tried to kill Abraham Lincoln when he came on his way to the inauguration. He had to sneak through the middle of the night. It was a very tense time. Very tense time. And as a result, you know, uh, somebody like Rabbi Rice could be appreciated, as I said before, uh, for what they considered his virtues. Now, the country in general, once the war started, saw what a shechita took place. It was like a slaughter, you know. The, the battles in the Civil War were very bloody, and most of the time the generals did not know what they're doing. This is a W-Dua. Um, most generals in the Civil War did not know what they're doing, except my, my hero. And um, uh, the wounded situation, it was just terrible, the high, high mortality. And religious people, especially the Christians, I'm saying, started to ask themselves the question, why is God punishing America this way? To have a fratricidal conflict and brother against brother and such a shrit and a slaughter. And they came up with a general consensus that the country is not religious enough and not Christian enough. They wanted to rewrite the Constitution and put God in there. They fought to put God on the money. Abraham Lincoln tried to stop them and he was able to prevent them from rewriting the Constitution. But he wasn't able to keep God off the money. That's why we have in God we trust. So it was such a period in the time that even the Jews, notice, whatever the guy do, the Jews pick up. If it became a time where the guy want to go back more to religion, so it became fashionable, the Jews should go back more to religion. So in this last year of 1861-1862, he started to have more success, Rabbi Rice, in getting people to be more observant. Isn't that funny? But not because, because the whole mood in the country went that way. So he was able to ride that, 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 um, that cloud, you might say. That wave is a better word. Uh, which is just very interesting. And he finally started talking about making, for the first time, a real day school that he had big hopes returning to yeshiva. We will never know what happened because he died in 1862. He wasn't an old man, but, you know, these diseases came all the time in Baltimore and just carried him off. This was a terrible clop uh, because there was no... There was no other rabbi in America like him except... Maybe one, feel away, and not not quite like him. And uh, the Orthodox definitely had nobody, and his death was like an unbelievable azach. And as a result, the Frum Jedi collapsed.
in Baltimore, the shoal he was in, within a few years went to reform. Totally reform. His own followers in the shoal, like I say, about one third that, that liked him, they broke off, broke off and made their own shoal. Uh, called Chizagamuna. Uh, the guys in his house, you know what I'm saying, who were in his house minion, they eventually made a shoal which is still there today. That's the from Shul and Baltimore shares to Israel. Went through several iterations, but that's what it eventually became. Rabbi Halford Shul. Uh, his own kids became not from. His son-in-law, who was supposed to be his Talmud, became like a reform something or other. It was a terrible business. His own family became not religious. You know, they're all victims of America. And, in general, knows is a failure. The only thing is, he, he was... You couldn't deny that he was a tzaddik. You know what I'm saying? Even the reform, even his opponents at that time said like this. We don't agree with what he held, but he was uh, a righteous character. You know, he he's a man of his convictions, and he did nothing. Notice there wasn't even a kihuze chash that he ever took any money from anybody or anything like that. Everything was 100% yashras. Uh, and so he left an image of, you know, of uh, like a saint. You understand? Although... Not somebody that people want to follow. So what was the result? For the next 30 years or so, after his death, the 1860s, until his guys grew up and died, from his generation, uh, he had like a certain aura. You understand? And it meant that Baltimore, more than other towns, would have at least a small chalik of, of, of really from people. Uh, these are German Jews who were uh, Shemritar Mitzvahs. Now, they didn't know anything. They weren't telling me the Chacham at all. But uh, the example of Rabbi Rice, you know, was held them up. And um, there's certain families that are still there today, not many, that still, you know, keep things uh, from. Uh, and they, it, for, a, for a generation or two, they consider themselves inspired by his, his example. Now, uh, this helped a little bit uh, keep the... Orthodoxy alive in Baltimore, but it was only in the 20th century that other things developed to to take that, which I say, little uh, uh, flame, not even a flame, and make something out of it. Bottom line is, you got to have yeshivas, you know that. Uh, uh, without that, it's a brachal Now, why am I talking about him today? There's a, the rabbinate is a funny business, and as I said before, it's like a shidduch, and you can't say. He looks good and she looks bad. She looks good and he looks bad. It's got to be looks don't matter necessarily. It's got to be the right chemistry. The guy and the girl have to have the right chemistry. He clearly did not have the right chemistry for, for, for the rabbinate in Baltimore, Maryland. And I don't think he would have been successful anywhere else in the United States of America uh, as a pulpit rabbi. The pulpit rabbi, especially in the old days, required a certain type of ability to dance on eggs and to know when to hold them, when to fold them, and who to flatter, and who to be stark against. Uh, it, it, you, you had to be like an actor. And I'm not saying anything in a cynical way. I'm saying if you wanted to be Matzliach, uh, and know you know how to raise money, and, and then use the money for proper purposes, for the finish and so forth, uh, he, that's not who he was. He was a straight, honest person. They call a spade a spade. If you're doing the right thing, he gave you a praise. If you're doing the wrong thing, he gave you a criticism. Uh, he, this is what I see. I can't do no other. Uh, 
So those are private virtues. And the truth of the matter is, they're tremendous virtues. Uh, if the whole world was like that, we wouldn't have 95% of the trouble we have. Because I would know where you stand, and you know where I stand. We wouldn't have the hypocrisy and all the baloney that characterizes you know, human relations. But um, to have, the whole world is not like that. And you needed someone who knows how to maneuver, and that's just not who he was. So that's why I say I consider him a tragic figure. A Talmud Chacham, he could have been amazing. And he really, there's no question whatsoever, he was totally Tsukapas. If they ever would have set up something called the Basin of America, he would, you know, get the, not a question. And there aren't too many people like that. You know what I'm saying? The rabbi should come here in 1840 with that kind of knowledge, but we see from here it's not enough to have knowledge. You need a community that's able to, you know, appreciate that knowledge. The Rambam says very famously, and he's speaking very elitist, he said, why did God create so many people? So that the Talmud Chacham wouldn't be alone and bored and uh, have somebody to talk to. Something along those lines. Which is very turn off in American terms, like the rest of us suggest furniture. But this is what he means. That to have someone who's a great saint or a Talmud Chacham or something like that, without anybody with the ability to appreciate who you are, to have a, 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 a righteous person and, and people make fun of him, say, oh, you know, he's too dumb, he'll never make money. That's almost like the worst, that's the worst gallus. That's, that's, that's the worst gallus. They call it the gallus hashchina. So, in my opinion, I think Rabbi Rice was uh, uh, condemned to suffer a kind of a gallus hashchina. Um, on the other hand, you could say, and I don't mean this to be funny, this would not be history, it would be meta history. Maybe the, the carbonus that he, that he was, maybe the hakrova that he did, was what, 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 uh, you know, uh, prepared the ground, let's put it this way, it was machshir the ground in Baltimore, so that later on they have more Hatzlacha here to from than in other cities. Because there's no question about that. Right? Baltimore has a bigger from community, more well-grounded Jewish community than, than, most, than most other places, not all of the places, most other places, certainly cities of this type. Uh, it's a community in which 30% are Shabbos Shabbos. There's no other community. I mean, not like what are monthly, but you know, Regular communities out there, you don't have that kind of percentage. I told you the the, the, the federation is always playing with the numbers because they want to knock them down. It's really the big thing here. How come in Baltimore not somewhere else? If someone wanted to be very from, and you know, uh, I'm serious, uh, they would say, "See, because you had such a exotic over here, that he, you know, uh, laid some kind of metaphysical aura on there." Uh, if that's the case, then you know, then his time here was not in vain. Anyway, with that. I bid you a good night, and then we'll get some sleep. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com.